0: Yeah, this past Thursday was 20 years, and I remember uh, when, we, when I started, I didn't even preach the first Sunday. We had a special speaker, uh, uh, Jim Bjornstadt, who was at Northeastern Bible College at the time, which was in Essex Fells. And uh, But I remember uh, there, after the first couple of years, I said, there's no way I'm going to make five years here, no way, impossible. And then after five years, I said, well, you know, that's not bad. You know, I doubt 10 years, very, very much doubt 10 years. Then it's 10, and all of a sudden, it's 15, and all of a sudden, I'm old, all of a sudden, and, uh, and I'm still here. And... Uh, so, but it's, it's been one of the great, you know, it's, it's been the great privilege of my life to to, to serve this church for these, that many years. It really has been. It really is. So, anyway. Um, we're continuing our series, uh, The Journey, uh, getting near the end now because we're near the end of the year. And uh, we are in First John again. And I was reading a story this week. Uh, in April 2001, a very interesting thing happened uh, uh, in the Holy Land. Actually, it was in, uh, it was in Gaza. In April uh, 2001, in the midst of you know, that whole Israeli-Arab conflict, a motorcade carrying the security service chief of Gaza came under bullet fire by uh, Israeli troops. Now, the frightened security official was trapped on his floor. He was down on the floor of his car, and he called Yasser Arafat from his cell phone. He was then chairman of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, for help. Arafat, in turn, immediately called the U.S. ambassador, who then, right away, got on the phone with U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell. Colin Powell then immediately phoned Ariel Sharon, the Israeli prime minister, who ordered that the shooting be stopped immediately. And it was, all in the space of several minutes. The security chief's connections really eventually saved his life. Now, all that is to say that when you are in a desperate situation, it's nice to have connections in high places. John the apostle, in writing to a group of folk late in the first century, told them two things. First, he told them whether they knew it or not, and a lot of them, we're going to see, did not know it. Whether they knew it or not, they were in an even more desperate situation uh, than the uh, security service chief. And then he also told them, you know what, don't fear. Everybody relax because you have a friend in high places. So here's what we want to do this morning in the minutes that we have. We want to find out what was the situation that was so very dangerous that John, almost at the beginning of his letter, needs to address it. And it's a dangerous situation for us too. What was that situation that was so dangerous for them, consequently so dangerous for us, that John felt he needed to warn about them, wanted them about it right away? And then secondly, what was the ultimate solution for them while they were in that desperate situation? Well, first, first of all, the situation. The situation, uh, many had been dangerously self-deceived. He said in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, certainly, uh, the worst and the saddest form of self-deception uh, of deception is self-deception, uh, fooling ourselves. Uh, but we do it all the time, and there's always a reason behind self-deception. We do things, we, everything we do, we do for a reason. When we deceive ourselves, when we tell ourselves a lie, or, or you know, we end up believing a lie, there, there's always a good reason, or we think a good reason behind that. Sometimes we're self-deceived. Because the truth or the consequences of the truth, what we think the consequences of the truth will be, it just hurts too much. We can't even go there. You know, you're dating a guy for seven years. You've dreamed a thousand times of how you're going to spend the rest of your lives together and you're going to raise children and you're going to buy a house and hopefully a low-tax area and generally you're going to live happily ever after. But all the evidence points to the fact that he is not now or maybe will ever be ready to take the marital plunge. And it's mostly little things. He gets edgy whenever the topic comes up in conversation. He doesn't particularly like children. He's mentioned several times that marriage is an institution devised by women to trap men into doing something that they really don't want to do. Little things, little indicators like that, that over the long haul, you figure, I don't think he's ready for marriage. Maybe he never will be. But even though you've been told by family, you've been told by friends, beware, this does not look good. The thought of letting it all fall apart is just absolutely too much to handle. Just absolutely too much to comprehend. So you continue to firmly believe. He'll come around. He'll grow up. They all do sooner or later. That the handwriting on the wall that you see is, you know, just a bad figment of your imagination. We do it all the time. You can make your own scenario. You can write your own narrative. It's called self-deception. She's ignoring or she's hiding the truth from herself for seemingly a very good reason because the truth just hurts too much. The evidence is there, but she chooses not to see it, even when it's obvious to everybody else around her. Now, there's always a reason behind self-deception. Now, here was the problem in the case of John's audience and their self-deception. John's people knew they had sinned. They just refused to believe that the situation was as bad as John was telling them it was in his book. You know, if if you corner almost anybody today, and you've probably, you know, you uh, maybe have had conversations with people, and you, you start off, you want to share the gospel, and you talk about sin, and you say, you know what, do you think you've ever sinned? I have never had anybody say, no, I've never sinned. Never, ever, I've never had, and I'm willing to bet that back then, People are kind of the same. They figure, you know, we screw up. Yeah, obviously, I remember this, I remember that. Yeah, I, I, I've sinned. You know what? I, I, I think they would say the same thing. I guess I have. Now, not only do they probably have some background in their upbringing, in moral religious codes like the Code of Hammurabi or the Ten Commandments, but most people then, and not definitely today, we have this this inner self-formulated code. We have this group of laws and, you know, good works that we feel we need to do to be a good person. And, and most people, they don't live up to the written code that they say they follow. They don't li- live up to the code that they've written in their own minds, in their own brains. But it's always hard to live, like, you know, living in the, the land of a day late and a dollar short. So what we do is we begin to compare ourselves with other people. We know we mess up. We know we don't come up to the code, the written code or the code that we written, have written in our minds. So we start looking at other people. And based on that standard, John's audience, they thought, were doing pretty well. Not perfect, but pretty well. At least pretty well in comparison to the rest of the Roman Greco world that was, you know, all around them. The the Roman Greco world around them were filled with people, folks, it's, it's absolutely the truth. They were vile. They were outwardly and proudly immoral. It was a cruel society. Many times, as you read history of that time, it seems like, you know, the conscience escaped from every single person who was born back then. Now, compared to them, John's audience was actually in pretty good shape. And based on that comparison, they were pretty sure that they were good with God. They were good to go. But there is a sobering word that John gives his readers just previous to the passage that Lee read for us this morning. In verse 6, if you have your Bibles open and you look at verse 6. In verse 6 of 1 John, he says, If we claim to have fellowship and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. It was John saying. John says, if you say you have fellowship, but you walk in the darkness, you are deceived. He is saying that there are those who think they are right with God. There are those who think they are Christians. But they're not. They're not. And I got to tell you something. uh, That's about as frightening as you can get. (laughs) You know, I don't know about you. But you read words like that. That is about as scary as it comes. You can be a non-believer and actually think you're a believer. You can be self-deceived at the deepest levels. And verse 8, he says this. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You say, Now, wait a minute. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that. You just said two minutes ago, almost anybody would admit that they have sinned. One Bible p- teacher, though, put it this way. He said, The danger lies much deeper for this crew. John is saying, Self-deceived people who think they know God but don't are always in that condition. Listen. Because they don't understand the full extent and depth of their sin. They don't understand the full extent and the depth of their own sin. Now, look at what John says. He talks about, in in verse 9, he talks about sins. And in verse 8, he talks about sin singular plural he was just just repeating himself just to get the you know just to get the point across right no i don't think so as i look at it one of the great mistakes people make is that they think that sin goes as deep as a simple moral code but john would seem to be indicating that it goes much much deeper than that before we have sinned before we have violated either some inner code or some outer code some rules and regulations before we have sinned before we have violated the code we were we were stuck with a sinful heart. Sin; those outward manifestations emanate from a sinful heart. Our problem goes way beyond breaking some moral code. It goes to the very center of who we are as people. It's like you know, it's like culture. We talked about this many times before. I think I mentioned it last week or the week before. We have no idea how pervasive our culture is until you leave it. You, 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 the only way you find out how culturally ingrained the practices that you have practiced your whole life is, is if you leave this culture and you go to another culture. That's the only way you could do it. People who come here from other countries, I've seen sometimes they look at the hygiene of the normal American, they go, these people are crazy, man. they got to wash their hair and condition it and do all this every single day. What's the point of that? Every day? You know, I was looking at some practices in another country, Chinese potty training in the more rural areas of the country. takes place, you know, where? In the streets. It's quite acceptable for kids to be walking along the street and you know, there's a donut shop and just nature calls and right there, right in front of the donut shop and the mother waits and it's it's okay. And to make things easier, pants even come with these cute little slits just behind their little booties. Uh, and it, listen, if that ever happened here, people would call the cops, right? They'd call the police. They go, there's, there's, there's a mad woman who's letting her kid poop on the sidewalk. Um, but you know what? That's, it's very acceptable there. It's not a big deal. See, we don't realize how ingrained culture is until we get out of our culture. Then you see it in a thousand ways that influences you every single day. John says, until you come to see the painful truth of the operating system that you are working under, the cultural constraints in a sense that you're working under, sin, unless and until you see that as a disposition as an outlook, as a way of thinking, as a way of living, as a way that you have organized your entire life, you will never see the danger that you're in. You'll never see it. Now, here's how we're organized. You want to say, well, how are we organized? Here's how we're organized. We are first and foremost self-centered human beings. We are not God-centered. We are self and human-centered. We are not God-centered. It's not that I never go to God. I pray to him a number of times a day. When I need something... Yeah, I'm always praying. I pray for the parking lot. I pray for this. I pray that this guy would get out of here. I pray that this one would be fired. I pray that, you know, that somebody would come along and, and, and uh, you know, give me help with my work. And if, if, you know, if God is there, great, wonderful. If not, I'm mad at him. See, I, I, I think of God in terms of my joy, and my happiness. And we see the whole universe revolving around ourselves. That's the operating system. It's the first sin. We want to be God. You go back to Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, in Romans 1 and 2, if you read that, he, he's drawing a picture of the pagan Greco-Roman world that I just uh, uh, mentioned two minutes ago. And, uh, you know, the, you know how bad, Paul's going on and on about how bad they were. They lived violent lives. And then he begins to talk about the Jews, in particular religious Jews, who are fastidiously trying and striving to obey the Ten Commandments. Now, you look at them, you say, well, who's sinning more, the pagan Greco-Romans or the Jews who are following the Ten Commandments? Well, if you look at it, well, the Greeks are sinning a whole lot more. And, and, you know, if you compare the two, you say, well, who's worse? Well, obviously, this group over here. What was Paul's conclusion? Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 3 was this. What shall we... Now, who's the we? The we is the religious Jews. He's part of that group, right? What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Here it is. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even One. They're all alike. They're all alike under sin. Now how can he say that? How can he say it in such clear terms? Here's how he could say it. He could say it because Paul knew, like John knew, that sin, before it's a bunch of violations of a code, is an inborn disposition. If you think sin in, in terms of primarily being a set of code violations, You know what? You're in danger. Before you see sin as individual indiscretions, you have to see it as a general predisposition of who we are. You need to see it as a violation of the entire person. It's not enough to say, I have sinned. You must say, I have sinned. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. (laughs) If you believe that... You are capable of almost any sin imaginable. Once, listen, once you swallow that, if that's true, and I think it is, once you, once you believe that, you are capable of any sin imaginable. We're capable of every kind of evil. We are capable of the same things that we read about that guy did in the paper yesterday, and we look at, at it and we say to our wife or our husband, this person is sick. I mean, they are just sick. That person is or crazy. Charles Spurgeon used to use an illustration of an acorn. He used to say that an acorn, inside an acorn, is an ocean of wood. Uh, in, first of all, obviously, f- base level, inside that acorn is a huge tree, a huge tree. But every single bit of that tree, it's, it's in that acorn, only it's all scrunched up, you know? It's all like, you know, folded in real nice. There's not one thing that's gonna come out of that acorn that's not already there when it falls to the ground. Not only that, Inside that acorn are thousands and thousands and thousands of other acorns. And you know what's scrunched up inside of each one of those acorns? Another tree. Which means inside that acorn is a thousand other trees, and inside them are a thousand other trees. So he says that a single acorn has the power to cover the world with wood. But if the acorn acorn falls on cement, what happens with it in a couple of days? You know, the guy comes by and he's, you know, he's blown, he's got the blower and he blows him up and he puts him on the side of the street. And, you know, the guys, you know, from the Department of Works come and they pick it up at the end of the week, right? It it, it rots and all the power goes to nothing. But listen, that doesn't mean that the power is not there. It's got to fall into soil, it's got to be watered on, you know, so on and so forth. How does murder start? Really, how does murder start? You know what it starts with? It doesn't start with somebody grabbing a knife and killing somebody. It starts with a thought. Even Jesus said that. It starts with saying something like this. You know what? I don't like that person. That guy's a jerk. You know, I I, I wish they would disappear. It starts with selfishness and a grudge and pride. And in the acorn cup of your heart, all of a sudden you find out that there is an ocean of evil. An ocean of evil. If by God's grace you fall on the pavement, if you, by God's grace, are not in a situation where evil is fertilized and watered, uh, you know what? Maybe you won't see how much evil can come out of you, but it doesn't mean it's not there. By God's grace, I was born into a family, a bit screwed up family, but a family where mother and father did loving acts towards us. They really did. I went to a decent school in a middle class neighborhood on Long Island's South Shore. I was never sexually molested when I was a child. My father was not in and out of jail. I was not tormented by others because I was slow or physically or mentally challenged. But if I did, if I was, I wonder how I would have been different. I wonder, I wonder if I would have not followed the same path as some of the sickos I read about in the paper. See, it's in there. It's in there. We never learn that we're sinners by someone telling us we're sinners. You're a sinner. Oh, okay. You know how we learn that we're sinners? By... Showing everybody around us how sinful we really are. And, you know, one day, whether today or whether it's tomorrow, you're going to say something. You're going to do something. And all of a sudden, your immediate reaction is going to be this. Did anybody hear that? I hope nobody heard that. My phone wasn't on, was it? Uh, and you're going to do that. And all of a sudden, uh, you're going to see that, you know, where, you ask yourself the question, where did, did you ever say, where did that come from? Where in the world did that even come from? In that moment, you will know that evil resides in you. And it goes deep. Deep down. And you will realize that the only thing, the whole comparative righteousness thing has done to you is to lead you into a self-deceived state of mind that if you're not careful, will lead you right to hell. See, John saw the problem and he knew how dangerous self-deception could really be. Verse 10, he says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, who's him? God, we make him out to be a lawyer, a lawyer, a liar. Sorry. Where did that come from? Um, If we, (laughs) I just lost, I think our three lawyers in the congregation. They're they're actually right now walking out the door. It's all right. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and the word has no place in our lives. You know what John, John wanted them to know? He wanted them to know that they were sinful by choice, but they were also sinful by nature, and that sinful by nature and choice would ultimately lead to eternal judgment. The situation, all right, what's the situation? Many had been dangerously self-deceived. I think I'm okay, generally speaking. I'm good, you're good. Uh, You know what? If they're in that place, that is a very scary place to be. A very scary place to be. So for all us sinners, what are we to do? How are we to approach God with this mess uh, what, what do we need? What's the solution? Well, we need two things. We need the proper approach when dealing with our sin, and we need the right representation. Proper approach and, approach and right representation. The solution, the proper approach and the right representation. Um, look, look at uh, uh, verse 9 says this. First, the proper approach. You know what the proper approach is? Humble confession. He says this: If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. First, our approach. Okay, um, only those, and this is this is absolutely central. Only those with a keen sense of their own moral failure have any chance of making things right. They're only they're the only ones who even get inside the you know consideration inside the gate. Now, the thing is, if you think you're worthy. If you think that you can, on your own, traipse into the eternal throne room through prayer and act on your own behalf, the fact of the matter is you can never be saved. You will never be saved. Unless you understand that you are such a failure in thought, in word, and deed, that you are wholly unworthy to enter into the holiness of God, you can never be saved. You need to know that. You know, the prevailing thought with religion is this. Good people get in, bad people Need not apply. But the reality is the opposite. It's just the opposite. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the poor spirited, not, you know, the guys who walk around like this all day. And we all know people like that. The poor in spirit the you know the humble as opposed to the haughty and the proud blessed are the poor in spirit who know that they are bankrupt in spirit who know they have nothing to offer to a holy god and if it's up to them they're on the outside looking in forever and ever and ever blessed are the poor in spirit he says this for theirs is what kingdom of heaven it's only the humble who will ever see the king and his kingdom the only thing that's going to keep you from having your sin debt removed is you thinking that you can do anything about it. That's the only thing that will keep it from ever being removed. It's thinking that you're worthy to go in. Uh, th- there is nothing to hinder us to going to God except this one thing, the delusion that you have good works that can satisfy your sin. That, you know what you, know what you need, really need? All you need? All you really need is need. That's what you need. And that's what we, we come to him with. Nothing but need. Now, the solution, the proper approach and the right representation, we, we, we need, it, the second point is absolutely central. It's absolutely key. He says in verses 1 and 2, the right representation, he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word that he used there, uh, in the NIV, it's translated advocate. It's parakletos. Advocate literally means one who pleads another's cause before a judge. A pleader, counsel for the defense, a legal assistance. What's an advocate? He's one who has an official relationship with you, so that whatever the advocate does, whatever he achieves you achieve. Whatever he loses, you lose. An advocate is a legal proxy, a legal representative. What's John saying? He's saying that, you know what? How do you deal with sin? How do you deal with the fact that, you know what? We not only break moral codes, but we're sinful deep, deep, deep inside of us. We're kind of sick. How do we deal with that? We deal with it by true confessions and faith in a good defense. What we need is a good defense attorney with whom, whom we have a relationship with who, whatever they get, we're going to get. Now, you know, national leaders, you look at, we can understand this. National leaders, they can declare war. Our leaders can declare war and they don't have to say, Tim, what do you think about this? Jen, Jen, what do you think? Everybody, oh, raise your hand, everybody who thinks we should. They don't do that. We have, in, in this system of government, we have elected them to be our proxies, to be our advocates. So if they declare war... Or they don't declare war. You know what? They take us along with them. Legally, we voted on people to serve as our advocate. They make a good move. It's good for everybody. They make a stinker of a move. Everybody suffers. You know, in ancient times, uh, sometimes an army would put forth a champion who would stand and literally represent the army of the country against the champion of the other country. You know, if your champion had a good day and brought you victory, you had victory. Uh, If he was defeated, you were always defeated. Can you think of any thing in the old testament any stories met david goliath remember goliath went you know nine foot what was he nine eight or something and he went forward he was their champion that israel couldn't find anybody finally david stepped forward and you know what it was winner take all it was it was a you know it was a battle to the death a cage battle to the death and we know how that one turned out right Today we have lawyers who have we give them the power of attorney to act on your on our behalf as our proxy. You know what? Sometimes you don't even have to appear in court. They just go and it's like you're in court. The advocate is listened to, not you. Your advocate is listened to. John is saying that for those who humbly confess their sins, they all at once, you know what they get? They get an advocate. They get a legal representative who goes to work on their behalf before God Almighty. The relationship of Christ to his people, this is so key. The relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate. See, we deal with sin in two ways. By true confessions and by faith in a good defense. We hire a lawyer. You know why we hire lawyers? Because they talk really, really good, right? I mean, they talk a whole lot better than we can. They they, they talk in a way that we can't talk. They frame my case in a way that I, I'm just not smart enough to frame it. Now, for those of us who may be familiar with this concept of, you know, Christ is our advocate, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we see that and we say, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus is my Lord kind of thing. You know, for some, it's a brand new concept. For for those of you who who it's not a a new concept, a lot of times you believe that. But this is, as I was thinking about it this week, this is how we kind of think Jesus is at the right hand of the Father pleading our case. It's kind of like, you know, Father, uh, Tim, uh, again, my son, he did it again. Yes, again. But listen, please, pretty, 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 please, please. Because of me, you know, don't destroy him. Give him another chance. What? Just one more chance. One more chance, really. That's it. One more chance. And we're pretty sure that, you know what, we're getting close to the point where the father is going to say, what? Again? You got to be kidding me. What, What do they think we're running here anyway? Forget about it. No more chances. In a sense, we're thinking that we're getting close to the edge and God's going to say that. Now, isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that John does not call him Jesus, the lover of my soul. Is he the lover of our soul? Absolutely. He doesn't call him Jesus, the faithful one. Is he faithful? Of course he's faithful. He doesn't call Jesus, Jesus the merciful, or Jesus the gracious, or Jesus the persuasive one. He calls him Jesus, the righteous one. Now, look, a good lawyer goes into court with a good case. He just goes in with a good case. Now, the teaching of this passage is this: that Jesus is not up there asking for forgiveness and for mercy for Tim. He's telling the Father what the law is. He's not persuading the Father. Father, yes, Tim did it again. I know he's an idiot, but I have. You know, he's not doing that. He's saying, "Look, he's done it again." But I have died the death that he should have died, and I lived the life that he should have lived. And you know what? I know all you have to do is now see me and it would be absolutely unjust to enact two payments for the same sin. I do not ask for mercy. I demand justice. See, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's saying at the right hand of the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. You know, he's God. He can do anything. Eh, That is not technically true. God cannot do anything that goes against his own nature. God cannot sweep our sins under the carpet. If he did that, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be just. It would be a violation against his very nature. Justice has to be stronger than mercy. You know, in this country, no judge is allowed to sit and preside over a trial where a relative, and especially somebody in their own family, their own kid, is up on trial. They can't do that. Why can't they do that? Okay, we yell, anybody with an IQ of 80 or above, we all get this one, right? We all get it. Because, you know, what? they're going to come down on the side of justice and mercy. What do you think? It's going to come down on mercy. Every single time we will come down on mercy. But what happens when justice is thrown out the window? Civil society begins to break apart. We all understand that. We do want justice. It's the only way it could run. The justice of God demands justice. But the love of God, see, we also have that in part of his nature. The love of God demands that he accepts and he saves me from the consequences of my sin. God the Father is not some reluctant participant. We think he's on the throne. He's going, all right, you know what? I guess I have to do it. You got me. It's a small print. I didn't read the small print in the contract. He's not like that. He is the one that devised the whole plan from the beginning. He knew that men and women would not only... be code violators, but they would be sinful deep inside of themselves. And they would, given the chance, pick the wrong thing all the time and would have inside in the acorn cup of their heart every vile murder, every rape, every instance of child abuse, every single one is in every single one of their hearts. And he knew that. And he knew it. So he provided the only way, the only way that his justice and his love could both be satisfied. And when Jesus comes to him, when my lawyer goes to the father, he says in my behalf, I ask for nothing but justice, O father, and for you to accept him. And you know what? He's got an airtight case. The law is not against us. It's for us. You know, there's no such thing as far as I know of like that, what I just said, in any other religion. I don't know. You know, uh, maybe I just don't get it, but I don't think there is in any other religion. This goes way beyond forgiveness. See, a lot of people think that when we trust Christ, we are forgiven, that he wipes the slate clean, but now we're kind of on probation. We're on holy probation, and you better do good, you know. All right, listen, we let you go this time, but don't expect another. This is, you know, this is... And then we go out from there. Jesus Christ has gone through all of that for us. And he has accomplished, the Bible says, righteousness for us. He is our champion. He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. Look, we deal with sin by true confessions and faith in a good defense. So now, you know what happens? You know what it means? We can finally deal with our guilt. Because you know what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. It's finished. God has not just forgiven us of our sin. Not only the mercy of God demands that he shower us with blessings now. Now it does. There is no condemnation, Paul said, for those who are in Christ Jesus, who shall bring a charge against God's elect. So when the voice comes to us, and the voice comes all the time to us, and says, you're a Christian? (laughs) Are you serious? I know Christians. You definitely are not one of that. That's a joke, right? See, when the voice comes to us and says that, here's our response. Those sins have already been paid for. Go talk to my lawyer. See, that's that's our response. That is the end of the voice. When it comes to you, we say, Jesus is my advocate. When God sees you, he sees you in the same way that he sees his son in all his beauty. And you know what? It's the only way to deal with disappointment. We, we, you know, we get destroyed over loss. We lose hope. We become despondent. This is the antidote. You know, when Stephen, the first Christian, remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Acts 6 and 7, read his story later. He was brought into court and, um, you know, they were throwing all these charges at him and they said, well, you know, they had the power of life and death over him. They said, we're going to execute you, you know, if you, you better, you know, and he started preaching to them. He started going through all the Old Testament and he's like, it's like the guy, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, why don't you just, you know, take the red flag in front of the bull and turn around and do this. I mean, that's exactly what he was doing. And he starts preaching to them. And, you know, on earth, these guys were, you know, basically calling them all kinds of names. They're saying, you're a loser, you're a liar, you're a cult leader. You were a cult leader in Jerusalem. And everything that he desired on earth, anybody would desire, like a good name, like popularity, like to live a peaceful life, to live at all, all of that... Was going to be taken away from him. And what happened? What happened? The Bible says he looked up and he saw Jesus Christ, his advocate, standing at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says his face got all radiant and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand. And he knew that because of his advocate, you know what he knew? That he was loved, that he was accepted. That he was acclaimed, he was received, he was forgiven, he was righteous, and nothing that was going to go on here on earth really mattered all that much, even if they killed him, which they did two minutes later. We deal with sin in two ways we deal with it by true confessions and by faith in a good defense to the degree that we realize that we have an advocate who paid it all and who stands before the Father, we will be able to take criticism and rejection and take the things that weigh us down and know that we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. And when we really understand that, all of a sudden, we begin to change and we begin to desire... Holiness and righteousness, just like our righteous Lord. you desire that today? Do you know that there's someone who stands at the right hand of the Father, and he's pleading your case, and his case is airtight? You know what? It's great to have, when you're in when you're a tough spot, it's great to know people in high places, isn't it? It's great. If you know Jesus Christ, you do. You do. Let's pray. And Father, we we confess that we, we forget. Those of us who have confessed our sins, who have humbly come, who... Uh, you know, we, we we did it. We we it's it's kind of past history. It's kind of old history. We we know we're sons, but you know, a lot of times uh, we hear the voice. The voice comes, and he he is wily, and his desire is to destroy. He can't if he can't take us down with him. He's going to try to destroy us as much as he can on this planet and make our lives miserable. And we listen to the voice, and God, we pray that we would hear what. Prophet and the apostle was saying to us this day that we have an advocate who pleads our case. We are all lawyered up, and he pleads our case. And with that sin that has so destroyed us, we said we, we've confessed it, and we have. But it follows us. You know, it's it, when I see that certain person. When I, when I, you know, I smell the smell that was in that room or that place and, or, or I see, a, a, you know, these, these pictures in my mind, oh God, in and, and, and a dream and all of a sudden we forget and, and once again we are under the condemnation of the evil one. I pray, God, that we would remember that we have a lawyer who pleads an airtight case on our behalf and the case has nothing to do with me being better with me promising I'll never do it again it has to do with the fact that he lived the life I should have lived and he died the death that I should have died and you will never you will never exact punishment two times for the same crime glory be His name, Father. For those who uh, maybe they're in the other group, God, and they're they're like, uh, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm okay. You know, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not taking drugs. Well, at least I'm I'm not stealing to support my habit, or you know, well, I'm not using violence when I steal to support my habit. There's always somebody lower down, God. You know that. Oh no, there's always somebody we could look down to and say, "Well, you know, there they are." We're the righteous Jews and they're the Roman, the Greco-Romans. And God, we know now. We, we, we know now. Uh, you look at us and you say, you know why? It's all the same. It's all the same. Because the sin goes so deep. It goes so to the core of who we are. And God, there may be some who are here for the very first time this day and they say, you know what? I, but the Spirit of God, I realize that I am sinful to the core in this day humbly confess and i readily accept my advocate my lawyer and what he did for me in the cross god i pray that you would hear that prayer and that you would save them today and we know that if you do you're merely doing the right thing We thank you that we have a just judge. We thank you that we have a righteous Savior. And it's his name. We thank you and we pray.